0: All right. Well, good evening. Happy Wednesday evening to everybody and hope you're all doing well. And uh, we are uh, going to talk about something tonight called the teleological argument. The teleological argument is the argument from design. So when we see design uh, in the universe, in plant life, in animal life, in human life, what's more likely uh, scientifically and logically that there was a designer or is it more logical that um, there was no designer? It was just kind of all random. So we're gonna look at that tonight and what we talked about last week, just in the way of reminder, is that the universe, um, it, it certainly started as nothing and it's certainly not nothing anymore. So how did it become something? And um, uh, the, the The most logical explanation is that there was someone who created the something rather than no one who created the something. So that's why this class is called the best explanation for all the evidence. If you simply lay out all the evidence and say what best explains it, I think Christianity is a runaway uh, winner with that. So, um, So we've proven scientifically and theoretically that the universe had a beginning. Beginnings have beginners. So now the question becomes Who made God? That's what the atheists always go to. Well, I acknowledge somebody had to make the universe But who would you say made God? Since the beginning brought all time space and matter into existence This someone or the something has to be beyond it. We talked about the law of causality last week whatever caused the universe has to be greater than the universe It's part of the law of causality. So if you see in your notes, if we look at that law of causality, it says every effect needs a cause. Every cause must be greater than its effect. It does not say that every thing needs a cause. And that's important because when the atheist says what caused God, the law that we're following doesn't say that every single thing needs a cause. It simply says if something's an effect, that effect needs a cause. So we need something that is a first cause. And listen to the language now. The first cause has to be an uncaused cause. This is necessary for us to understand the beginning of the universe. There has to be a first uncaused cause. Otherwise, there's no explanation for the universe. If everything, if everything needed a cause, then when you say what caused God, whatever that answer is, you'd have to ask what question next? What caused that thing? And then what caused that thing? And if you're tuned in from last week, you'll say that's an infinite regress. You can't enter into infinite regresses in these logical arguments. So there has to be a first uncaused cause of the universe. In other words, it has to be an eternal cause. And it can't be subject to time or material or space because time space and matter came into existence at that first cause so god is not an effect he is eternal he needs no cause he is the first uncaused cause now the atheist will protest that you can have if you can have an eternal god why can't i have an eternal universe and this group in front of me will say well that's where our surge acronym comes in correct you can't have an eternal universe one reason is because of the second law of thermodynamics. Another one is that the universe is expanding. If it's expanding, that means at some point it was smaller to the point of a point of singularity, and then you have to ask what happened before that point existed. So we know through surge, that acronym serves, that the universe is not eternal. So we need something else that's eternal to cause it. So all the scientific and philosophical evidence surge, Uh, Radioactive decay, what I mean by that is we know that uranium decays into lead. And if the universe were eternal, there would be no uranium left on the planet because it would have all decayed into lead by now because that uranium would have had an eternal past of decay. And there's no way there could be any lead left today. So the fact that we have lead in the Earth is proof that the universe is not eternal. It's finite. The Kalam cosmological argument, I told you about that one. Uh, where, uh, if the universe is eternal, that means we've to get to today. We would have had to completed an infinite amount of days in the past, and it's impossible to complete an infinite set of anything. You can't complete infinite sets, but that's necessary to get to today if there's an eternal universe. That's more in the philosophical realm than the scientific realm. But what I love is whether we go to philosophy or science, the evidence all points to uh, the Bible. All right, so. Certainly the best explanation for the universe is indeed God. So what would this first cause have to be like? Well, just from the evidence alone and using nobody's scriptures, no religion's scriptures, we know the first cause must be self-existent. In other words, without a cause. The first cause must be timeless because time came through the Big Bang and non-spatial because space came through the Big Bang. You would also have to be immaterial because matter came through the Big Bang. So since the first cause created time, space, and matter, the first cause must be outside of time, space, and matter. It's an exact definition we get of God in our Bible, which was written thousands of years ago. Remember, the Bible is not responding to all this science. The Bible was written before the science was ever even figured out. And yet once we figure out the science, it just so happens the Bible matches it perfectly. That's a benefit of truth. Truth will always work that way. All right. What else do we know about this first cause? We know the first cause has to be powerful enough to create the universe out of nothing. So it has to have incredible power that it needs nothing to create everything. So again, we have an omnipotent God. He fits that description. We also know the first cause has to be intelligent enough to create the universe with impeccable precision. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The impeccable precision of our universe. And we know God is intelligent enough. He's omniscient. He all knowledge. We know the first cause must be personal. This is another thing. can't be some impersonal force that created the universe. Why does it have to be personal? Because we have personhood on this earth. I have personhood. You have personhood. Personhood cannot come from non-personhood. Just like life can't come from non-life. Just like intelligence can't come from non-intelligence. So we know that all these things must pre-exist the universe. This is exactly the description of God, and it's not derived from Scripture or from scientific and philosophical necessity. These things are necessary philosophically and scientifically for us to make sense of the beginning of the universe. All right, so if we ask this question, why is there something rather than nothing? How come there's not nothing in the universe right now? And I may have said this last week, but if the universe blinked off for a millisecond, it's just like everything disappeared into non existence for a millisecond, then it would be necessary scientifically that the universe would go on forever not existing. There would always be nothing. If there's ever nothing for a millisecond. There has to be always nothing. Why? Because out of nothing, nothing can come. That's the ex nihilo nihil fit Latin phrase from last week. Ex, nihil, nihil, ex nihilo nihil fit. Out of nothing, nothing can come. So if there's ever absolutely nothing, there will always be absolutely nothing unless there's a first uncaused cause with the power and intelligence to uh, create something out of nothing. All right. So there's only one reasonable answer to that question. So my favorite quote I'll give you through this whole entire eight weeks is right now. It's the Robert Jastrow quote. I think you see it in your notes says, in his book, God and the Astronomers, that's a book I highly recommend to you. In his book, God and the Astronomers, Robert Jastrow concluded his research by stating, for the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So as these um, atheistic scientists are trying to climb the mountains of ignorance to try to get to where all the knowledge is, when they finally get up over those final rock, they find a band of theologians who have been telling that story for centuries already. That's what's happened, especially with the universe. Everything that they discovered about the universe is already in our Bible, whether it's Genesis or Isaiah or Psalms, it's all there in detail. Remember, Robert Jastrow is not a Christian. He's just somebody kind of keeping score between the atheist argument and the theistic argument. And his conclusion is the theologians had it right long before the scientists had it, figured it out. So Proverbs 3.9, if you see where I'm at in the notes, Proverbs 3.9 tells us, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So, so all those hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it said it was wisdom and knowledge that created the universe. And now that we know physics, we see it was incredible knowledge and wisdom that created the universe. They didn't know the physics that we know today, yet they they just knew through inspiration that um, we knew through inspiration that uh, wisdom and knowledge was behind the creation of the universe. All right. Okay, so now we're going to talk about divine design. Okay, so we're going to talk about the design of this universe and the odds against it being by accident are so incredibly astronomical, it far surpasses the scientific number for an impossible event. Well, scientists and mathematicians say if an event reaches a probability of one times 10 to the 50th power, that's a one with 50 zeros after it, that event will never happen. It's an impossible event. And we're gonna see that many, many, many parts of our Earth and many parts of our universe Far exceed those odds. So it's not even just one event that exceeds those odds that would make it impossible without God, but it's many events exceed those odds. So that made James Torr, who's a, nan- who a nanoscientist, he, he had this, uh, this quote, it's pretty, pretty point blank. He said, only a rookie who knows nothing about science would say science takes away from faith. If you really study science, it will bring you closer to God. That's what I want you to know is the truth about science. When you really know science, it'll bring you closer to God. All right. So, so far we've heard an atheist physicist say that the universe exploded out of nothingness. An agnostic astronomers say that supernatural forces were at work, so much so that a band of theologians have been sitting there for centuries. Okay? So now we'll look at the precision with which the universe was designed, the incredible precision with which it designed. This is known as the teleological argument. So teleological, telos, means purpose. The end has a purpose to it. So when we see the design of the universe, we see it ended the way it did, purposefully. There's meaning behind it. And uh, so this is the teleological argument. And as you can see, I've given you three points again, because this is how argument works. We're going to have the first two points will serve as our premises. And if the first two premises can be proven, then the third point, which is our conclusion, has to be true. If you can prove the first two premises, the conclusion naturally follows. So premise number one we have to prove is that every design has a designer. Every design has a designer. Without a designer, you just get randomness. But with a designer, you get design. Second premise we'll prove is that the universe has highly complex design and therefore, the conclusion will be the universe had a designer. All right. So I hope you see where we're at in the notes, uh, Sir Isaac Newton. He acknowledged the need for a designer of the universe. Now, many scientists say he's the, the grandfather of scientists. He's, he's the highest IQ we know of. He's a like brilliant, genius scientist. And he said this, This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being he said it can only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being and i gave you these uh, verses from isaiah 45 says for thus thus says the lord who created the heavens who is god who formed the earth and made it who is who has established it who did not create it in vain. So there's your teleological argument. He created it with purpose, who formed it to be inhabited. I love that. He formed this earth to be inhabited. Why do I love that? Number one, because I'm inhabiting it. So it was very fortunate for me that he did. Number two, because you can look at every other celestial body our telescopes have ever contacted, and you'll see there's no other place in the universe that was created to be inhabited, none. So why this one? I can understand if things like water and oxygen came to our planet, but maybe potatoes and carrots and peas got to Mars and maybe strawberries and bananas got to Jupiter, but why did it all come to us? Every single thing needed for life hit this tiny, tiny planet and went nowhere else, okay? The Big Bang landed all the stuff for life in one place and none of it anywhere else. Give me a break. Okay, that's intentional and in designed. God created the earth to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other, he says. I have not spoken in secret, he's talked to his prophets, in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So that's what we're looking to do is find those things that are right. And we find Christianity to be the best explanation for all of the evidence. Okay, let me talk about William Paley for just a moment. William Paley was famous for his watchmaker analogy. Very simple, yet profound logic. He would say if you're walking in the woods and you find a diamond studded Rolex watch, what do you suppose caused that watch? Of course, he didn't say Rolex. But what do you suppose caused that watch? The wind and the rain? Erosion? Some combination of natural forces? Of course not you would know there's an intelligence behind the cause of that watch. So much more, the need of the universe has to have a cause. So today, in 2020, if you're walking in the woods and you find a watch, you would not say, look at what the wind and the erosion and the rain did over the years. Made this beautiful watch for me. You would know from the design of that watch that that watch had a designer. Now, do you know, that your body and my body are far more complex than a, than a watch. And yet, the secular scientists will attribute it to randomness. Yet they won't attribute a watch to randomness. Let me put it even simpler for you. If you looked out your window and you happened to see in the sky these words that says, drink Coke, would you dare say what an amazing cloud formation that is. Formed a D and then an R and then an I and then an N and then a K and then a C and then an O and then a K and then an E. All in that order. You would never ever tribute that to randomness. Why? Because drink Coke is far too complex of a set of information for you to believe it was random. It's too complex. You know intelligence is required for those letters to be formed in that order. As simple as that statement is. And so when we talk about DNA and the anthropic principles we're about to talk about, give me a break that that was random. And so what will the atheist say? Well, if you give the randomness millions and billions of years, it's bound to work out this way. But folks, what do we know about randomness and time? The more time you give randomness, the more random it becomes. Here's an example. If I have a box of red, white, and blue confetti in my arms, and I have, say, a thousand pieces of red, white, and blue confetti, and I say, I'm gonna now flip it over and spill it on the floor, and I expect it to form the American flag, okay? It's gonna form the American flag. You would say, there's no way, it's too random. Well, the atheist answer to that is, we'll give it more time. Well, how do you give a dropping object more time? You drop it from a higher, level. So now let me go on top of the Empire state building and give it more time. Is it more likely to create the American flag or less likely? It's incredibly less likely because now that randomness is going to spread over way more territory and go way crazier on the way down and be way more unpredictable, way more things will affect it like wind and things like that. So When you randomness plus time leads to increased randomness, which is the opposite of the theory of evolution. They say randomness plus time equals order. That is not seen in science anywhere at any time. So is it likely that that's how life started? No, it's not the best explanation for the evidence at all. It's just that it's a godless explanation for the evidence and that's why they go with it. All right. Mount Rushmore. Anybody been to Mount Rushmore? Okay, you've been to Mount Rushmore. You're staring at these four presidential heads and you recognize them. They're 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 so uh, sculpted so so precisely that you can name the shapes of those rocks and tell me what presidents they're representing. Now would you stand there and poke at the tourist next to you and say, isn't it wonderful what wind and what rain and erosion can do over time? There's no way you would look at those faces and say that design came by accident. So these are simple examples that show you the argument is fallacious. Listen, I'm going to say this, and I know it's not probably the nicest thing in the world to say, but it's insulting. It insults your intelligence to say it's possible that we came about from mindlessness and randomness. That's insulting because you have never seen On far simpler scales those techniques form any sort of design and yet they want to say the massive complexity of life was formed that way. It's just insulting that our universities are training our kids to think that way. All right, the anthropic principles. Everybody see where I'm at in the notes? All right, anthropic principle. Anthropic comes from the Greek word anthropos which is the Greek for the word mankind or humanness. So the anthropic principle simply says this. There are principles in physics that say it looks like this this physics was designed for man to be alive on the earth. These mathematical formulas seem like they have a purpose to them. and That purpose seems to be our survival on this planet. So this principle speaks of the highly precise and interdependent environmental conditions that make up the universe. Remember, they're interdependent. So they're not individual things. They rely on each other, which also shows design. Each condition is known as an anthropic constant. Anthropic means human or pertaining to man. Each constant means a required precision to allow the possibility of life to happen. So now we're going to go through some of these anthropic constants. There's over 100 of them. I think there's like 127 was the last number I heard, but they're always, they're varied, and some people call that an anthropic, Concept. others call this one an anthropic constant. So the number varies, but there's well over 100 of them. Each of them with astronomical odds of ever coming true. Each one individually has astronomical odds against it ever happening, yet they all happen. So here's the picture I paint for my students. I'll try to paint for you. Our students have lockers and those lockers have dials. So they have a three digit number for their locker combination and they have 50 little slashes that go from zero to 49, that they spin the dial and they can have the first number of their combination anywhere from zero to 49, same with their second number, same with their third number, okay? So I tell them, what are the odds if you just whacked your dial and it spun and spun and spun and landed on your first digit? It's a 50 to one chance, correct? But now you have a second digit you have to do. So now you whack it again, it spins and it lands, What are the odds of it doing again? Well, 50 times 50, which I'm pretty sure is 2,500, okay? So it's 2,500 to one odds of it happening twice. But now you got a third number. So you got to whack it again. Now it's 2,500 times 50, 125,000 to one. Anybody got a calculator? Okay, 125,000 to one odds of you giving it the three whacks and you get your locker combination opening. 125,000 to one. Here's what we're talking about with the anthropic constants. Let's say there's 120 of them. So you don't have three digits on your dial. You have, a, you have um, 120, no, I'm sorry, you have 120 lockers you've got to do. Not just your one locker now with 125,000 to one odds, but now you've got 120 lockers you've got to get right. And your dial doesn't have 50 digits on it. It's got anywhere between 600,000 and multiple, multiple hundreds of millions of on them. And that's what these odds are going to be. And now you have to whack them and get your digits right on 120 of them, or there's no life. It ain't going to happen, ever. Nobody's going to ever be able to pull that off. But it happened, and that's why we're alive today. So what does the atheist say about that? Richard Dawkins literally says, well, yes, I understand the odds against it, but the only reason we can talk about it is because it actually happened. That's his great scientific mind. That's his answer. It must have happened, because here we are talking about it. All right. First anthropic constant I'm going to give you guys is simply the oxygen level in our atmosphere, which is unlike anywhere else. I lost a picture. The oxygen level. Um, oxygen comprises 21 percent of the atmosphere. If we were slightly higher, spontaneous fires would destroy the planet. If we were slightly lower, we would all suffocate. It has to be what it is, or life doesn't have any chance at all. The second anthropic constant on the next slide is uh, atmospheric transparency. You know, I used to joke around before I ever heard of anthropic constants, and I would say things to my students like, "Aren't we fortunate that evolution made air invisible? Can you imagine if it wasn't invisible? It was like something you could see, and you couldn't see anything else because you can't even see through the air. That would shut us down completely, worse than COVID." So but air is invisible, it's actually see-through. And How handy is that? If our atmosphere were less transparent than it is, not enough solar radiation would reach the Earth's surface. If it were more transparent, there would be far too much radiation to survive. This constant goes for the precise levels of nitrogen and the ozone layer as well. All of those have to be precisely what they are or there's no life on the Earth. What about the moon-Earth gravitational interaction? If the interaction of the gravitational force between the Earth and the Moon were greater, tidal effects on the oceans, atmosphere, and rotational period would be too severe. If it were less, orbital changes would cause climatic instabilities. In both cases, life would be impossible. What about carbon dioxide levels? If it were slightly greater, a runaway greenhouse effect would occur and we would all burn up. If it we were lower, plants would not be able to maintain efficient photosynthesis, and we would all suffocate. Fifth one, gravity. According to Jeffrey's Weirink, research physicist at UCLA, he said if gravitational force were altered by one to the thirty-eighth power, okay. If you want to count the zeros, feel free. There's thirty-eight of them there, I believe. Okay, just one chance. And remember it's one chance in a hundred if there's just one zero now there's 38 zeros if, if the uh, Gravitational force were altered. This is a hair's breadth of altering Then our Sun would not exist and neither would we All right, here's some rapid-fire additional constants for you one centrifugal force of planetary movements precisely ba- balance the orbits around the Sun so, our Earth spins on its axis at the exact speed it needs to. So, centrifugal force allows for the perfect um, rotation of the Earth around the Sun. If the universe expanded one, one billionth more slowly, the universe would have collapsed in on itself. If it was any faster, galaxies would not have formed. So, that's one speed chance in, in a billion. There's a billion to one odds for you there. So the locker combination on that one has a billion dashes on it. And if you whack it, it's got to land on your number. Okay, that's just for the expansion rate of the universe. Any variation in the speed of light and the other constants would alter and life would be prohibited. If water vapor levels were greater, a greenhouse effect would make temperatures too high for life. If they were less, it'd be too cold for life. Jupiter's orbit is precise so that its gravity vacuums up much space material that would otherwise strike the Earth like comets and asteroids. Jupiter serves us like our big brother protecting us out there. Its huge gravitational force sucks up so much space junk and asteroids and all that that could otherwise hit us. Six, if the Earth's crust were greater, too much oxygen would be absorbed by it. Any thinner and volcanic activity would prohibit life. So even just the crust of the Earth has to be precise. Seven, if the rotation of the Earth were slower, temperatures between night and day would be too extreme for life. Faster and atmospheric wind velocities would be too great. Eighth, the 23 degree tilt of the Earth is just right to avoid unlivable temperatures on the Earth. The 23 degree axial tilt of the Earth has to be 23 degrees. It's actually 23 and a half degrees if you want to be more precise than that. Nine, if the lightning rate were greater, fire destruction would be inevitable. If it were less, there would be too little nitrogen fixing in the soil. So the lightning strikes are necessary for life because it mixes up the, the nutrients in the soil for plant life. And of course, plant life is what we consume for our life. And a tenth one, even seismic activity is perfect because any more would be too destructive, and any less would not allow nutrients from the ocean floors and riverbeds to be cycled back to the continents. So even the earthquakes are stirring up the nutrients just right for everything. All right. So Dr. Hugh Ross, he's an interesting interesting guy. Um, He calculated that 122 constants, so there's how many constants we had at that writing. I say the number varies sometimes. But when Hugh Ross said this, he had 122 constants, and that's why I said and growing. He calculated that these constants to allow for life on the Earth existing on any planet. So never mind just saying they got to be right for the Earth. Let's say it could be any planet at all. And he calculated that there's one times ten to the twenty-second amount of planets in our universe. Okay, so that's a one with twenty-two zeros after. Is how many planets he's allowing for the possibility of life. He said, uh, in the by chance. This all happening by chance are one chance and one to the 10, 1 times 10 to the 138th power. That's what that number is in front of you with all those zeros. It's 138 zeros if I counted my taps on the zero button correctly. Alright, it's a huge number. One times ten to the hundred and thirty-eight. Do you guys remember the number I gave that is established in math as an impossible event? It's one times ten to the fiftieth. Remember that? So one times ten to the hundred and thirty-eighth power is almost three times more unlikely than an impossible event. You hear how crazy this language gets? This is almost three times less likely of happening than an impossible event happening. This is almost three times as impossible. And that's what secular science has to go with. Now listen to the title of the class again, folks. This is the best explanation for all the evidence is Christianity, it's God. It's the best explanation for all the evidence. The estimated number of molecules in the universe. Now listen, folks, this is an actual published and agreed upon number. How they figure it, I have no idea. But they say the estimated number of molecules in the universe is only 1 times 10 to the 70th. It's between 1 times 10 to the 70th and 80th hours. Okay? So you're more likely to, to pick a marked molecule from anywhere in the universe, any galaxy, anywhere. Millions of light-years away, if, if God marked out one molecule for you to select, it could be on your own body, which has tons of molecules. But in, anywhere in the whole universe, you had to pick the right one. That's more likely you would do that than life happening, as it did. Okay? Because you picking that one marked molecule in the universe, you have 1 times 10 to the 70th to the 80th chances of getting that right these 122 constants coming true, all coming true on any planet, is 1 times 10 to the 138th power. Almost double as unlikely as you picking the correct molecule out of the universe. This tells us that there is zero chance for there to be life in the universe without a divine designer. And I say zero chance because we're way beyond the number for impossible. Way beyond the impossible number here. Okay. Arno Penzias. Um, I gave you him when I gave you the radiation background of Surge last week. He was one of the Bell lab uh, scientists that discovered the radiation background and won the Nobel Peace Prize. He said this, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. And the absence of an absurdly improbable accident the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. Saying, I'm a Nobel Prize winning scientist, and I'm saying when you look at the science, it suggests a supernatural plan. What is a plan? A plan is intentional. A plan has a telos or a purpose behind it. Um, and that's what... Arnold Penzias concluded. Cosmologist Ed Harrison said this, here is the cosmological proof of the existence of God. You hear that? The cosmological proof of the existence of God. The design argument of paley that's the watchmaker analogy guy, updated and refurbished. The fine tuning of the universe provides prima facie evidence of deistic design. A deity designed it. He says, this is evidence. It's what a scientist is looking for all the time is evidence. We have the evidence. So how do atheists respond? Uh, They respond to this overwhelming evidence, way beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, some concede, like astronomer Fred Hoyle. He's an atheist astronomer. He said, responding to the anthropic principle, he said, a common sense interpretation of the facts Suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as chemistry and biology and that there are no blind for- forces we're speaking about nature Now these guys aren't coming to faith Because that that's a supernatural act as well, isn't it? But they're saying There is no natural explanations Once we figured out the physics of the universe. There's no natural explanations. So here's Fred Hoyle saying. Somebody monkeyed with the physics. (laughs) Somebody had put order into the numbering. Okay? All right? It's kind of like going to a junkyard and buying an engine and a hood and everything. And then you go out the next day and it's all assembled. You go, somebody monkeyed with this. And it just can't assemble itself. Okay, Somebody smart was here. There's no blind forces we're speaking about. Now, what's the irony of that comment? We're accused of what? Blind faith. What do they believe in? Blind forces, forces that have no sight or mind attached to them or anything. So they think we're kind of anti-science because they think we have blind faith, but they have blind forces at work. Um, And here's what I want you to know about blind faith. I don't know what religion you're thinking of if you think you have to have blind faith for Christianity. What does Hebrews 11.1 tell us? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's substance is 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 um, tangible. Okay? You, you can substance has. Gosh, this is a terrible way of speaking. Substance has substance to it. Okay, so there's something there, and it's evidence of things not seen. When, when people accuse us of blind faith, they're saying. You have no evidence, but you believe, anyways. That is not Christianity. What do you say about Jesus Christ, his life, if that's not evidence of God, for heaven's sake? All right. Oh, I get a little enthused about this stuff, I think. All right, I lost my slide. Let me find it here. Okay. All right, so some will concede, like Fred Hoyle concedes. Somebody monkeyed with the physics, there's supernatural forces at work. Here's what others will say. While they admit there's design, they'll say that design is a result of chance. Now, chance is not a thing that can act upon another thing. Chance is just a word we use to describe things that we don't fully understand. That's all chance is. But everything is related to physics. Okay, so when you put a coin in a slot machine and pull the lever and you say I'm taking a chance, that's just saying I don't know the mathematical odds involved. I don't know what the physics is behind the spinning wheels, but they're obeying the laws of physics perfectly. We just don't know the physics involved with the spin. So we say it's chance, same with the deck of cards. You get delta p- people take a deck of cards and they shuffle that shuffle is following the laws of physics perfectly. It's just that we don't know the laws of physics involved and we can't figure them out in our mind during the shuffle, so so we call it chance. But chance is just a word to describe what we can't express, what we can't figure out in the physics. So chance is really a non-entity. It's a, it's a no thing, it's a nothing, okay? So when they say it's from chance, they didn't even give you anything that can be a cause For an effect, chance can't cause anything. Chance is not a real thing. It's just a word. It's like zero. Zero is not a number. You you can't count zero things. Zero is just a number to describe the lack of something, but it's not an actual thing. Okay, that's what chance is. So, but they'll talk talk it up to chance, and what they'll propose is the multiverse theory. And I briefly mentioned the multiverse theory. Last week, but they'll say, yes, we we understand this universe is impossible through physics. There's no way this universe could be here without divine design. We'll admit that. But if this is the only universe, then it's impossible. But if we're one of many universes and and don't be fooled by their language, they'll call it a multiverse and talk about many universes. But that that makes these odds even worse for them. Because if this one is so hard to get, a second one and a third one is infinitely harder to get, okay? It's like you hitting the lottery and going, wow, if I hit it once, I'm going to hit it again. No, it's way less likely you'll be a two-time or a three-time winner than it was you were a one-time winner. That's the thing with the multiverse. So if they're honest with you, they'll say this about the multiverse. We have to believe in an infinite amount of universes existing, an infinite amount of universes. It's the only way the multiverse theory can work at all. And it doesn't even work that way. Why? Because you can't have an infinite amount of actual things. It's impossible to have an infinite amount of actual things. You can only have an infinite amount of theoretical things like numbers. Numbers are theoretical, so we can theoretically say there's an infinite amount of numbers because we can keep adding one to a number. But you can't have an infinite amount of actual things. For example, uh, if I make a timeline, if I make a number line, and we put arrows on both ends of the number line. That's to say that these numbers go in both directions the negative and the positive forever. Because numbers are theoretical and we can have an infinite amount of them. But now if you say these things are, this timeline now is like um, a, a long shelf, can you put an infinite amount of books on them? No, you can't. Okay, you can only have an infinite amount of theoretical things, not actual things. So universes are actual things. You can't have an infinite amount of them because then you'd have to have an infinite amount of big bangs to create them. And you can't have an infinite amount of big bangs because of the S in surge, the second law of thermodynamics. These infinite amount of bangs, every one of them would cost energy, would lose energy. So, So the thing causing the infinite amount of bangs is gonna burn out and can't go on forever and ever, okay? All right, so what are the problems with the multiverse theory? This first problem is the problem with all their theories, like the ones I gave you last week against the cosmological argument. Number one, there's no scientific evidence for it, but there is scientific evidence against it. There's none for it, but there is against it because you can't have an infinite number of actual things and think of the fine tuning involved. If the fine tuning is so astronomical for this universe, imagine pulling it off for an infinite amount of universes. It's too broad of a theory where any event can be explained away by it. Like, why did the Holocaust happen? Well, it had to because in an infinite amount of universes, every event has to happen. That's what infinite amount of universes means. That means you have to exist on an, in another universe because you can't have an infinite amount of universes without every possibility happening. So that means you would have to exist in those other universes as well. That's why they want it to be an infinite amount of universes because Their simple statement is this. If there's an infinite amount of universes, then this one has to exist. It went from almost zero probability to 100% certainty that this one exists. If there's an infinite amount, then it's necessary that this one exists because every possible universe exists when there's an infinite amount. So they simply took a philosophical idea and tried to put reality to it, even though it violates the second law of thermodynamics and the... uh, Uh, The cause, what could possibly cause an infinite amount of universes? What would that thing be? Okay. Again, only God would be capable of such a thing. All right. And I think our final slide of the evening. Uh, Let's restate the teleological argument. Let's see if we met our burden of proving the first two premises. Every design had a designer. Okay, so we talked about Paley's argument, Mount Rushmore, We looked at watches and and faces on mountains and things like that, and we realized design has to have a designer. And if you say, well, of course a watch or a carved mountain has to, well, I gave you something simple. I gave you a few letters, drink Coke. And I think you all agree that requires intelligence. That won't happen randomly. You could eat alphabet soup your whole life and you'll probably never see drink Coke in your alphabet soup or your alphabet cereal or anything like that. It's just not gonna happen. All right, so we proved, number one, every design had a designer that way. Two, as verified by the anthropic principles, we, we know beyond a reasonable doubt that the universe is designed as we are way beyond the number of, for the impossible for all these anthropic constants coming true. Um, it's highly unlikely any one of them would ever come true, yet the 122 of them coming true, all of them coming true, is way beyond the impossible number so uh, it's way beyond a reasonable doubt the universe is designed therefore the universe had a designer and now you're forced to consider god once again all right okay i don't think i went this far in your notes but let me just add a couple quotes here Um, so the anthropic principle leaves no plausible explanation for the design of the universe other than there being a cosmic designer Atheist's only responses are by presenting other impossible events, to explain this impossible event. Physicist Paul Davies, okay, this is another atheist physicist, he concluded this, One may find it easier to believe in an infinite array of universes than in an infinite deity, but such a belief must rest on faith rather than observation. So now, who's the one with the blind faith? Who believes in something with no evidence? It's clearly them. The infinite bounding universe has zero evidence, yet if they believe in it, they clearly have blind faith. We certainly do not have blind faith. We're actually following the path of the evidence to conclude God there. All right, and that's a wrap for the teleological argument.